Hey everyone, welcome back to the Farming for Passive Investing show where we strive to educate the agricultural community on how to create alternative income streams and diversification. Today we have a guest, Tosin Adewale, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, he is a real estate entrepreneur, a fund manager, an author, and someone who has truly impacted his community through some of my research um, in the Midwest. Uh, so Tosin, welcome to the show, man. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. So want to give us a little bit more flavor around your background of where, how you got started in real estate and all those types of things? Yeah, sure. So I think how I got started in real estate was kind of like an unfair advantage. You know, my, um, my parents, uh, they were in real estate very, very young. You know, my, my father came to the States from Nigeria when he was 17. And um, after he finished college, I believe he went to Rhode Island School of Design, then University of Champaign. And then he did his grad degree at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, where, we, where I was born and where we actually lived. Okay. And so before he was done with grad school, he just started buying a lot of multifamily property. So by the time he was 25, he had owned roughly 210 units in the St. Louis, Missouri area. Um, my mother being a couple of years younger than him, I think she was like 23, she would basically handle the property management, you know, so we kind of self-managed everything. And uh, every time she would go to like pick up rent checks or cut grass or do any of those things, she would always bring me with her. Okay. So I, was, I was a young child then. I was a very young child then. So it was, it was just one of those things to where I kind of just grew up in an entire household, an entire family where real estate is just what we buy, you know? And so maybe that's kind of the reason why I was able to understand it a bit easier than the next person or why it kind of just clicked a bit more, you know, um, yeah. when I was 14, my dad had the great idea to send me to uh, boarding schools in Europe, in Africa. And so um, he shipped me out there, he sent me to Europe when I was 14. And then probably a year later, I went to Africa and I was there for five years by myself. No brothers, no siblings, no nothing. He just dropped me off on another continent and said, what? all right, buddy, like it's you in the world. Yeah, you know? go for it. And so, you know, during that time, every year from 2000 to 2005, we'd go to another African country, just me, my friends, uh, a couple of like the chaperones from the school. And we'd go to another African country for like 10, 15 days. And we'd try to see what their business environment was like, you know, because in Africa, there's 55 countries and each country has a different business culture, structure, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So just seeing the world view and all those things, it just made me realize that, hey, when I get back to America, I think real estate is the industry that I just want to, I just want to be in that lane and learn commercial, residential, mixed use, you know, um, agriculture, just all that stuff. I just kind of wanted to be in that lane. And that's kind of what kind of put me on the trajectory where I'm at now. Nice, man. That's a crazy story. I mean, what, what's like one of the craziest things that happened while you were over there? Uh, okay. So crazy, good, crazy, bad. Either your, call. your call. I mean, you can't, you got to say at least one thing about that experience because that's super unique. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll say crazy good is that one thing that I learned is that, um, in Africa, your education, like your educational environment, it's way more, what's the word? It's way more people are in way more close proximity than yeah. the United States. 
like in the United States, the president of the country, his kids go to some private school with the secret service or whatever. You would never see them. In Africa, I mean, I went to school with vice presidents, children, ministers of communication, yeah. all politicians. It's like they send their kids to whichever school they want to go to. So you get to build some really, really nice relationships that last a lifetime. You know, many oh, of them cool. still in contact with. So that was something I wasn't necessarily um, uh, expecting or thinking was like the norm. You know? Yeah. So like super close knit communities. Yeah, I mean, you know, because there's, 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 there's truly really, I mean, when you go to the big cities, there's really only a handful of schools that kind of have like that great, amazing education, right? Yeah. Of which, of which is, is a way higher standard than the United States. You know, when I left the United States, I was a freshman in high school. When I got there and tested in, they put me back like, like seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. Because the level, I mean, when I graduated high school, I graduated, I was the oldest person in the school. I graduated 18. I was the oldest person in the school. And there were several people in my senior year class that were 12 and 13 years old, like several, several. Wow. <laughs> you know, so. Whoa, yeah. That, that definitely was um, a crazy good experience. It kind of taught me that, that, you know, your ability to learn is not based off of your age, it's based off of your capacity. And you can teach capacity. And capacity can be shaped by environment, you know, so. Oh, that's good insight, man. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So back, back in real estate, th- thanks for show- showing a little bit um, that background. Super interesting. Um, so you got back in the US and did you immediately hop into like residential? Did you go to college at all for real estate? Yeah. So um, one, of the, one of the things that, so yeah, three months before I graduated from high school, I got accepted into college, which I wasn't even sure was possible, you know, um, but yeah, my administrator just called me to the office and said, yeah, you've been accepted into college in the United States already. She showed me my acceptance letter. So I, I immediately just stopped going to class. I was like, I don't got to go to class anymore. I'm already in. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, when I got back, uh, I got back to the States, I believe July 29th, 2005. And right. uh, move-in day into my dorm, I believe was August 21st or August 23rd. So I was only back in the States for three weeks and I was right back to another dorm, <laughs> you know, in college. Yeah. And at that time, you know, I'd been gone for so long. I hadn't seen a lot of friends. And so I kind of just wanted to be a student, man. I kind of just wanted to be a kid for a little while. So for like my, my freshman year of college, I didn't really do anything business related, you know, besides like selling stuff on eBay and stuff like that. But for that Maybe freshman a little year partying college, here and there. Oh, of course, uh, a lot of that. But I just kind of wanted to just be a young man. And um, yeah, but second year, like sophomore year is when I kind of kicked things back into heavy gear and, um, you know, started working with my mom because my mom was buying properties in St. Louis, Missouri. She was buying a property every two and a half, three weeks, would fix it up and then put, you know, Section 8 tenants in it. You know, so she was she was being very, very active around that time. And that's when I started working for her and kind of just being around her on a daily basis and seeing, you know, how she was kind of building her portfolio. And then um, I started buying, you know, the uh, the CDs. You know, they, they used to have these CDs and teach you how to buy properties, pennies on the dollar and stuff like that. And so I got, <laughs> okay. I got taken in by a couple of those infomercials and until my mom started teaching me about the tax lien auctions, where she was getting a lot of her properties from. Ah, yeah. So being that, you know, you can buy properties cheaper, the tax liens, you still need money. So I didn't really have any money. So I just went into wholesaling. 
And okay. that was really, yep. yeah, that was really where I kind of was able to get the first revenue, the first check, the first money that I would yep. use to begin to grow on. And that was a whole different process because my parents had never wholesale before. They yep. got mortgages and bought buildings, you know, so I couldn't necessarily go to them to ask them for help for that particular strategy. Yep. And for those who don't know um, wholesaling, can you just give us a brief background on what that is? Oh, yeah. So um, wholesaling. So wholesaling real estate is when you find a person who wants to sell a property and you sign a purchase contract with that person to purchase their property. But in the purchase contract, there are assignment clauses which allow you to pass on that contract or sell that contract to a third party person for a fee so that you yourself don't actually have to buy the property. So it's basically like flipping a contract and you can do wholesaling in any industry. There's people that wholesale cars, wholesale farm equipment. You, it's, it can be done in any industry, but um, mm -hmm. that's how it works in the real estate. Nice, industry. okay, cool, thanks for that. Yeah, so um, started there and then uh, got to a situation to where I wanted to actually try a new construction build. And so I was aware that a lot of cities, a lot of cities in the United States, if you go to their city halls downtown, they have a lot of property that they've either foreclosed from like um, people that haven't paid their property taxes or abandoned properties. And they have a lot of programs to where they'll sell these properties, excuse me, they'll sell these properties to you for as low as a dollar, sometimes as high as a thousand dollars. I know Detroit has their dollar program going on, going on right now. And they're selling a lot of properties on the east side and west side of Detroit for a dollar. Um, the only thing you just have to have is a plan to develop the property. So you have to have an architectural plan. You have to get all that stuff mm -hmm. done before they give you the deed. That's crazy. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. So um, I went to New Jersey and I bought some land from the city of New Jersey for a thousand bucks. It was a 25 by 100 foot lot that was probably about three miles from downtown Newark. And so... <laughs> People that are familiar with New Jersey, they hear me say that price, they're, th they're probably thinking to yourself, you basically got that property for free because that same property a few years later, I didn't even do anything to it because I went through the whole process of trying to get architectural plans and zoning and trying to do a new construction my first time. You know, I got ripped off by a couple contractors and electricians with the down payments and all that stuff. And, and so I said, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't do a new construction as my first real real estate deal. Maybe I should start buying stuff that's already cash flowing, has tenants, et cetera. When I sold that property, I sold it for $75,000. So I made 75X my money on it and I did nothing but cut the grass. And uh, they had also given me a five-year tax abatement. So I hadn't paid, I didn't have to, have to pay property taxes on that thing for damn near the entire time I owned it. Okay. So, and nice. so yeah, so that's when... We just decided, uh, I'd always decided that I wanted to start a fund. And so I built a huge network of investors during, during my wholesaling days. And I had a pretty good idea of what returns accredited investors and investors look for, because I've been finding them deals for years now. And so- On um, like to, single family mostly, right? No, no, um, multifamily is family. usually where I kind of focused on. So single family okay. for investors that wanted to do flips, but um, there were a lot of investors that wanted stuff that they could hold on to, things that they could just buy that were value add that they could maybe buy for 65% market value, throw another 10, 15% in, and then have a nice four unit that's going to be, you know, cash flowing 21% a year. Yep. That's, that's really in, in the Northeast where I really got serious into doing my real estate. That's really what they were looking for 
at that time, you know, between like 2010-ish to about 2015 when those numbers were still possible. Now, you would, <laughs> yeah. you would need Jesus to come down from heaven and, and, and give you a deal like that now. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, you know, about eight, nine years ago, those were pretty fluent, you know. So after kind of just having an idea of what investors look for, uh, you have cap rate, then you have cash on cash return. They don't really care about cap rate. It's more about the cash on how much money am I going to make on the actual money I have in the deal? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So when I learned that, it was kind of like, oh, wow. Like, so now you start seeing deals differently and your deal flows more. And so I, I just said to myself, we could do this at scale. If we could, if we could get into a situation to where we could raise a ton of capital from a group of investors and then just go and invest that pool at one time, that would be way more beneficial than you know doing a deal here, a deal here, doing a deal right. a month. Economies you know, of scale. Yeah, making twelve thousand dollars, but it took me forty-five days to do it. You know, it's it's it, you know, so that was kind of where that came about. But I had an issue of. When you're starting um, a regulation A or uh, a regulation B or regulation D fund, these are all the SEC classifications that you have to go through in order to legally take money from the public, especially from people that you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of legal fees that are involved with having an attorney draft up those PPMs or those documents, and they can be into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And at that time, I just did not have that. Um, but I did have a partner who did and who I was able to convinced that, you know, we should start a fund, you know, you can be the CEO, I'm the VP and the co-founder and, but yeah, all these fees, uh, I'm going to need you to, and so it costs about 175,000 bucks for all of the documents that we needed at that point in time. And um, I believe we started that process 2016, launched that first fund June 1st, 2018, and raised about eleven and a half million dollars in our first seven days. Wow! But that's first, a lot of, that's a year, year and a half, two years in between the the start and the launch, right? Of course, yeah, of course, because it was yeah. our first fund. You know, right? Look, I, I'm I'm a very patient person, and I don't want to do something just because I can. I want to make sure that if I'm going to be taking millions of dollars from this, has to go right. So we're going to make Definitely. sure. We're, clients. We're going to make sure we have all of our, you know, third party fund administration in place. We're going to make sure that this is done correctly because you don't want it. I mean, have you ever been in anxiety because you owe, owe somebody 20 bucks? <laughs> Every time. Imagine being, imagine <laughs> how do you feel if you messed up $30 million or something? Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. So like, yeah, so it was just one of those things, just, you know, dotting our I's, crossing our T's, make, making sure that, you know, we are coming in this thing, doing it right. We are the young guys on the block. Um, a lot of people in the industry don't necessarily look the way we do. So we want to, you know, represent ourselves, represent our culture very, very well and do this thing right. And uh, right. so, yeah, it was about a year and a half from actual filing stages and concept to launch. Uh, during that process, though, that entire year and a half, we were grooming our, our investor base. So we, we were, you know, email list, uh, weekly conference calls to where they could call in and ask us any questions about any and everything that we were doing. Mm -hmm. And so that way, by the time we were ready to launch, all the four or 5,000 people or however many people invested into that fund, they were fully aware of what we were doing, how it was working, where we were going to 
um, buy property, they were aware of everything because we, we made sure that everyone was totally, we were totally transparent. And that's so great. that was, something, yeah, that was something that I learned. I was like, hey, that's why we were able to raise it so quickly. It's because prior to taking any dollar, we engaged our audience very, very, very intimately. Yes. And so af- after that, I, I kind of saw that, you know, the direction of the fund and, and where they were going, they were getting strong in asset classes in certain regions that I didn't want to be in because I saw a better opportunity in the mid, mid, Midwest. Okay. So a, a lot of people were, you know, I'm not sure if you remember, a lot of people were buying in like uh, Georgia, Florida, some people were still buying in New York and New Jersey. And yeah, you can find good deals there, but everybody neglects the Midwest. Everybody neglects Missouri, <laughs> Illinois, Indiana. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. I'm from Missouri. So I, I know what's going on. So I'm like, in Chicago, we can get 34% cash on cash returns. And that's not something you have to search for. That's just like stuff that's on the market. They're like, any yeah. commercial broker can just show you that's a regular. I said, why not start a fund, $100 million max offering, and we put that into the Midwest. We'd, we'd be able to do some amazing things for our investors and yield some returns that are just ridiculous, crazy. You know, um, I look at, I believe it was Ray Dalio, Warren Buffett, and Bill Ackerman, to a degree, they all have average returns that are in like 70%, 86%. But a lot of, a lot of the businesses that they invest in are not the, the sexy businesses that everybody knows about. They go to where the strong return stability and so I wanted to take that same approach is that, okay, there's nothing really, you know, sexy about St. Louis, Missouri, but if I can find, um, you know, a 30 unit building that's, you know, 85% occupied that I can grab for the cost of a single family home in New Jersey, why would I not do that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So the, like, the first fund, what asset classes did the first fund focus that on? That was kind of uh, all over the board. So commercial uh, commercial office space was the first acquisition, uh, 20,000 okay. square commercial space in Georgia. And then uh, 14 units multifamily in Lake Charles, Louisiana, seven units in New Orleans, and then a bunch of single family uh, flips in New Jersey. And I believe there was one in Ohio as well. But um, that was kind of, it wasn't really targeted mm-hmm. to one asset class. And I believe in, in, in targeting, you know, I believe, you know, yeah. to get good at something, it's gotta be the only thing you do for a long time, you know? And so I focus on multifamily mixed use, uh, 25 units and higher in the Midwest. That's specifically okay. where, you know. I'm and then that's talking. what you're, do you currently run a fund focusing, focusing on that? Right. Yeah. Class? yeah. So I started a building acquisition partners United also called BAP United. Um, $100 million max offering regulation D 506C fund. We focus on Chicago, Chicago suburbs. We will go as far as like Champaign, Illinois. Um, It's a huge college town about uh, two and a half hours away from Chicago. And there's a lot of surrounding towns there. And there's a huge rental market there because of the university and the other universities, the community colleges that are there. There, there, There's a huge market in central Illinois. And so- um, that's where uh, um, this fund is focused. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's something that I, I feel is a great, a great opportunity long-term. Um, recently, we just got on the contract for a seven unit that's fully occupied, $210,000. So 
seven units and the rent is a thousand dollars a unit. So that building's doing seven thousand a month gross after property management and expenses. We're probably sitting at about seventy. It, it, it's it's just numbers you just can't find if you go to Atlanta, Georgia, if you go to Miami, yeah. or if you go to Dallas or Houston or LA. Just impossible numbers. And those are regular deals. So I'm I'm excited to see where we're gonna be, you know, a year from now. Yeah. Two years from now. You know, so that's great, man. Um, so um, what's the difference between like a 506B and 506C? Can you help us explain a little bit more yes. about that? So, 506C is, uh, so Regulation D 506C is a fund that is only for accredited investors. So you have to fit those parameters, a million dollars in net worth, um, not including your the value of your primary home, $250,000 in income or $350,000 if you have a spouse. So with Regulation D 506C, there's no limit to the amount of capital that you can raise through that structure. And there's no restrictions on solicitation. So you can publicly solicit email, social media, you can meet a stranger and immediately start pitching your fund if you want. There's really no restrictions besides they have to be accredited investors. Yeah, through third party, right? You said? the So they have to be accredited through a third party, like you can't accredit um, like, no, so them, right? They can self-accredit. The, the, the SEC has something called self-accreditation. So they can sign a self-accreditation letter, which just basically says that they are stating legally under the risk of perjury or whatever that they are accredited. So if, if they're lying, I'm not going to get in trouble. You got to go tell that you and you and the SEC have a problem. So just, <laughs> yeah, you deal with the SEC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, yeah, so they can self-accredit or we can, you know, I think it's like a a $40 fee that we do through a third-party company that will actually check to see if they're accredited by their social security number or EIN number, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, Regulation D-506B, I believe that is for accredited and unaccredited. However, you 30% of your investors, I believe, have to be accredited. I think 35 investors yeah. need to be sophisticated. Gotcha. So I knew there was a 30 in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if I'm yep. not there is a, a cap on the amount, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think it's 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 an open ended or. Ever. Yeah, I believe there is a cap, but I'm not sure about the number. But we will yeah. definitely provide that in the show notes. Yeah, but uh, regulation is, and then you have regulation A tier one and tier two. Our first fund was mm -hmm. regulation A tier two, so unaccredited investors, max offering fifty million dollars, and um, I believe you can do 20 million max offering with regulation a tier one $20 million max i believe they have to be majority accredited investors and I think, uh, 30 or 35 percent can be unaccredited or something of that nature so when i just kind of looked at all the all the, the structures and I spoke with my attorney it just made sense that for growth it would be smart to go the regulation d506c lane because there's just less restrictions and I can deal with, you know, sophisticated investors and people that uh, are, are prepared for a three to seven year lock-in period because they understand this is how they grow their capital, you know? So there's just less, yep. less teaching and that has to be done. And so, yeah, that's just what made sense for me. Yeah, exactly. So when you think of about a 506C, are you investing, are you creating one fund and then into one asset or one entity, or are you using it in different ways? So there's a holdings company and then there's the actual LLC that is filed with, you know, in all the PPMs that just depends on the deal. So if we're going to take down, so there, there are a lot of portfolio deals to where it's like multiple properties. 
So mm-hmm. that, then yeah, it'd probably be a mixture of the different en- entities. But if it's a seven unit, a 25 unit, a 40 unit, then that's all just going through BAP United LLC. And so I haven't had the situation come up where I've had to use both of the entities yet, but I do have it on standby because my attorney told me that it, it may be something that needs to come in use. Smart. But, uh, and, yeah, until I get, until I get a, a deal, a, a 600 unit complex, you know, in my sites that uh, I actually have the capacity to take down and the investor capital is there. Yeah, it's, it's just going to be sitting there. Nice, man. So when you think about it from an investor standpoint, what are the, some, some of the risks that they should think about when investing in different deals in your areas? Uh, the management team. Um, you want to make sure the management team is actually familiar with that area or, or even better on the ground. So with my fund, every single level of the management team are people that are in and around North and Central Illinois. Okay. Property managers to our brokers to our some of our lenders are actually based in Chicago. Um, I think it's very, very important that every every piece of the machine has a high familiarity with where we're doing business. Um, I, I believe in being an expert in hiring experts. I don't know everything. So when it comes to property management, I'm not going to say, hey, I got it. I'll figure it out. No, I'm going to go to my property managers who are the Downing Brothers that have had you know two shows on HGTV and True TV, and they've been flipping houses in the Chicago area for years and doing property management for years. They know that better. So I'm going to consult them and ask them, what do you think we should do? You know, um, so I, I think um, if you're going to invest in any fund, you want to make sure that the management team has a, 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 a broad amongst everybody on the team awareness of what asset class and what market you guys are investing in. Um, I would also say be wary of incredibly high preferred returns. So Returns that are possible and that occur is different from returns that you're actually stating in your PPMs, in your paperwork. Right. So if you have funds that, and I, I, I learned this, you know, just by being super ambitious earlier, is that when you promise ridiculously high returns, you kind of don't give yourself a cushion for something in the market changes. You know, so if you're saying, yeah, we have a 14% or 16% preferred return and, you know, 80, 20 profit split and two and, and, you, and something happens in the market and maybe for the next year or two, you can't use 16%. So now you have investors that are going to be sitting there for 24 months, very upset and saying, hey, you know, the next time we can pull our money out, you know, let's just take this out and go somewhere else. Whereas if we have a 10% preferred return in a market where I know that we can do 14, 16. So now I'm coming to you, hey, we made extra money this year, guys. I have more profits to split with you. I'd rather do that than having to come back and say, hey, sorry, we got to wait. I'd rather say, hey, I got some better news. I know I told you this, but it's going to be more. So just kind of, you know, you want to invest with a team that's, that's kind of taking that position to where they're putting themselves in position to give you as much good news as possible during this entire three to seven year relationship that we're going to be having. Yeah, exactly. Under promise, over deliver. Yeah, man. Yeah, I think that's a great point about the management team, keeping, keeping it local. Those are the experts. And I also love that you were honing in on, you know, you seems like you focus more on your unique ability as well, rather than try and do everything. 
Yeah, I mean, my unique ability, and I've said this a million times, is identifying and targeting profitable <laughs> markets when they change. Because they change all the time. Every three or four years, there's a new entry point for a real estate market in the country. So if you get in after that time, you could still make some money, but you've kind of missed the golden period. The people that bought 21 unit apartment buildings in Newark, New Jersey back in 2011, they are sitting pretty today, sitting pretty. But the guys that tried to buy after, you know, 2015, 16, they didn't get, you know, the best deals, you know? So yep. my, my gift is identifying where those markets are because I'm always looking at different cities. I'm always hopping on a plane, going to random cities, renting a car, getting a hotel, driving around the whole city for a week and just getting familiar what's happening in that area. I've been doing that for years. So you're just bird dogging across the country. Of course. Like I just say, Hey, I need, I need a little vacation or I just need to clear my mind or I need, I just, I just have an urge to see what's out there. And I'll just go to a random city, random state I've never been to. And then it, it helps me have a pulse on what's happening in the country and being from the Midwest. Some told me, I was like, let me see what's what's potentially available in the place where i'm from because i never looked at institutional size investments when i was in the midwest it was all like residential stuff yeah it wasn't until i was in new jersey new york that i started thinking that big i said hey what if we took the the new jersey new york capital mindset money and put that in the midwest and that's when i was able to discover what i discovered so i mean that's something that i would definitely suggest to people but when it comes to underwriting yeah, I'll take a look at the deal, but it's not going to be my way or the highway on underwriting a deal. I have an underwriter who this is what he does. That's going to be his final decision. If he says this cannot make at least a 14% cash on cash or 16%, we're not doing the deal. It doesn't matter if I'm the CEO. He says it's not a good deal. <laughs> we're not getting into yeah. it. And so, you know, I, I kind of just like to be the orchestrator, uh, expert at hiring experts. I don't need to be the, the end all be all. It doesn't have to be my word is the last word. It's, hey, whatever makes sense for the companies that we can all grow so that we can. Yeah, really team effort, right? Yeah. yeah. So when you, when I imagine you going across all of these different markets and then throwing deals at your finance guys and the economies of scale there and having them research all of the individual markets, like how did they think they, they get all those deals analyzed in a, in a relatively efficient manner? Like, it seems like there, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, can you just yes. kind of walk us through some of that? Correct. So um, a lot of the unknowns really come in the discovery process of getting the, the T12s from the owners of the properties and, you know, seeing if, if all the data and information they're giving you is accurate. So you got to get like utility receipts, you got to get rent rolls, you got to get property management um, invoices or contracts. A lot of times they'll try to send you stuff in like an Excel file or something like that. And it's like, hey, like I get this is all the data compiled, but I need proof that this is even real because anybody can just type this up. Yeah. So the unknowns is just during that discovery period while you're waiting for verifiable documents to come in. Um, once all of that is in, I have an underwriter that he's, he's a numbers guy. He loves this. It takes him an hour, hour and a half once he has all the information to be able to tell me a yay or a nay. Um, took me a few years to find a guy like that, <laughs> you know? So yeah. I think it takes, it takes time of you just really meeting other people that are in the industry that love 
that love it as well and finding people that you kind of gel with and that kind of want to go down the same journey with you and you guys finding a way for it to be mutually beneficial for both of you to work together. And then, you know, that's how you can find guys that can do things very, very quickly and very, very efficiently. Um, a lot of times people just hire whoever's available. You know, you Google, yeah. I need accountant. I need accountant. Google accountant. Oh, okay. Oh, this person, I spoke to them on the phone for 10 minutes. They were nice. Let me hire them. No, you, you have to find the people that are the best in the game that nobody knows about, that are still on the come up, on the rise like we are. Like these are, you know, the Michael Jordans, but Michael Jordan in 1987 before the world. <laughs> like, that's what I want. You know, I want the Scottie Pippins in, you know, 1990 before anybody knew what they were, you know, like, and so it's a discovery process of going through trying to find the greats before everybody realizes that they're great. And so that can take some time, but, you know, I, I like, I like to kind of be, be patient with it. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's really smart. sounds like you're good at finding, you know, some uncut gems, not only in markets, but also in people as well. I think that's a pretty cool talent. Yeah. I mean, I, I learned that from, um, there was people that found me, <laughs> You know, there was people that found me that I got to work for and uh, that I got to learn a lot from and uh, uh, that I got to learn as far as how they assembled their teams and being able to work with those people as well, working side by side with them in sales and marketing and all types of, you know, client grooming and things of that nature and, and kind of seeing like, oh man, like this guy's really smart. How did they find you? And then them telling me the story of how they came into the company and then you start kind of piecing things together and say, oh, so this is how you find good talent <laughs> you know so yeah yeah well speaking of which dude i really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story providing value um to our listeners i mean is there anything that you wish i would have asked you um to help our listeners learn a little bit more about syndications and investing in real estate um yeah sure i mean if, if anybody who wants to consider either joining a syndication or starting a syndication the best thing that you can do is Google SEC attorneys that are in your area, or they don't even have to be in your area. Excuse me. Google an SEC um, law firm or a law firm that handles PPMs and just call them up and say you want more information and see what they can tell you and learn from the people that are actually in the industry doing it every single day. That's how I learned about different mortgage programs, different hard money, soft monies. I was just calling up lenders and saying, hey, what programs do you got? What loan products do you have? So the best way is to kind of just call people that are in the industry. YouTube and Google and all those videos are, are great. They're amazing. But there's something else from talking to an attorney who's been filing PPM since 1983 and, yeah. and, and who, who's helped you know, 500 funds start. There's, there's things he can tell you in 45 minutes that are 30 years of of. Of, uh, of education, you know? And so I think that is definitely um, the best way to start. So if people are, you know, thinking of either starting a syndication or joining one. That's smart, man. That's good advice as well. Uh, where can people get a hold of you? Uh, you can get a hold of me uh, through my website, uh, BAP United. It's BAPunited.com. Um, also available on Instagram, same BAP United at BAP United on Instagram. Oh, or you can just give the office a call. Phone number is 844-312-2278. And uh, yeah, extension one. And it'll, it'll extension one. All right, we'll yeah. put those in the show notes too. Listeners, thanks for hopping on the call. If you enjoyed it, obviously subscribe. 
and all of that and look forward to talking soon. All right, Tosin, see you, man. Thanks again. Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. You too, man. Bye.